Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And I'm Alex Pounds. And together we're going to explore the technical details of package management, the stories of the people behind the projects and the communities around them too. Today we're joined by Orta Thurox, an engineer at Artsy, the creator of Danger, and one of the main maintainers of CocoaPods. Orta, welcome to The Manifest. Hey, thanks for having me. So first of all, I think we should get started with what is CocoaPods? So CocoaPods is a dependency manager for Mac and iOS projects. So it's only really specifically for things that are run by Apple tooling. And it does this by generating native code projects and then sort of building that into Apple's existing tooling infrastructure. And subsequently, every time Apple's uh, existing tooling infrastructure changes, we have to you know, keep things up to date. So it's not an official project supported by Apple. No, definitely not. It was a project that a friend of mine called Eloy Duran created back in 2011 that I joined maybe in 2012. Having any dependencies inside native code is difficult. There's a reason why like C++ doesn't have a dependency manager. And so what my friend was finding was that trying to just update a single dependency inside his project was taking a very, very long time. So he took a lot of the ideas from RubyGems and Bundler, which I think was pretty new at the time, and tried to re-implement those, but inside a native context. And when we talk native context, are we talking just Objective-C or Swift 2? Yes, today Swift. Um, but you know, six years ago, Objective-C was the only thing that, need, that existed in terms of like building native tools. Um, but CocoaPods supports uh, everything that Apple supports, so Objective-C and Swift mainly. So before CocoaPods existed, how were people managing or sharing libraries between projects? CocoaPods came and said that we should have a kind of manifest file that describes how the library should be linked to a project, all the different source files and resources that should be in there. Before then, you would literally just have a list of instructions, which is download this zip file, drag this source file into this folder, drag this one into another one. These resources need to be put in these specific places. You would then have to have like individually upgrade recommendations for every time you had a new version. Because you know if a file had been deleted, then you had to download the new zip, and then you have to remove the old ones from the project. And it was most definitely a mess. But for a lot of the culture in native development, there's very much a not invented here kind of feeling. So the idea of including dependencies wasn't very big back in 2011, just in general, because at least for iOS, people were not making very big projects. On the Mac, on the other hand, you know, it was very common to make these kind of mega frameworks that people could use. They probably feel a lot like Rails does on the website, where you would have one big monolithic thing that you drag in and then uh, whereas for iOS, it was just kind of free-for-all, drag-and-drop, uh, change these settings, and eventually CocoaPods kind of turned that into something that was scriptable at different levels so that you could kind of handle something as crazy as like OpenSSL, which is like a big C++ library, but at the same time handling a Objective-C networking library and use the same system. So CocoaPods came out in 2011 and was a roaring success and is still going strong today. Yeah, uh, it's definitely the dominant package manager in the kind of native ecosystem. It would be pretty surprising to see libraries coming out today that don't have CocoaPods support. The alternatives are not quite as comprehensive as CocoaPods, either in terms of like not supporting many of the features or like 
having pretty drastic trade-offs in terms of long-term upgradability for your dependencies. And how did you get into programming to begin with? So I was a programmer because I wanted to make games. I know, and it's like a, it's like such a stereotype. I, I did that for a while, and uh, I had my first job out in Brazil actually making iPhone games. Once I came back from the country, because I got kicked out because my visa expired, I ended up going and doing a three-month hacker school on design. And that's actually probably been one of the most uh, useful fundamental tools that I've had in terms of being a programmer in open source, because a lot of the aspects that I'm interested in as a developer are around documentation, community management, trying to help people help themselves. It gets really hard to build very big projects with very few people. And I think improving documentation is usually one of the first easy steps to reducing workload on individuals and letting them focus on what they really want to be doing. And so a lot of my like training around design has come really, really in handy in both being able to build an entire product myself and to be able to say, like, I feel like we need to make documentation improvements in these different levels of the project so that we can actually not have to get as many incoming requests. Like being able to keep track of issues and finding out why people are having the same problems, like makes it easier to understand where the root causes of those are. What kind of games did you want to make? Back then, I started by copying Metal Gear Solid and tried to make it 2D because, you know, that was the, the cool game at the time. But the only real game I've ever actually published is a finger hockey game, so like air hockey. It turns out the, uh, the AI is actually the hardest part of making a game sometimes, so like the single-player mode. I ended up making all sorts of different algorithms for figuring out how to like give you an interesting character to play against, but at the same time, like be fair... And it realistically is really, really hard. And how did you get involved in CocoaPods? My start has been very interesting because the creator of CocoaPods, Alloy, is very much a like pragmatic person. He'll, he'll create something that will work in a small amount of code as possible in order to get something usable as quickly as possible. So instead of like a package registry, he created an idea called the specs repo, a singular uh, Git repo where a collection of um, recipes exist for every single library. And so what I did to start contributing was I just started reviewing pull requests to that one single repo, which I did for about a year. Every single upgrade of every single library had to send a pull request to this one single place. So it was just looking at these dependency changes, saying whether they'll break or not, uh, whether it will continue to work in the future. And it gave me a good chance to say hello to like, a large amount of people whose work I actually relied on. And then after doing that for maybe a year, I started feeling some problems around documentation in the community. As it was only just started to centralize on the idea of CocoaPods, I started to build something that's very similar if you're using Ruby to RubyDoc. Unlike uh, Ruby, where it's quite easy to pass the source code at runtime and pull out documentation of any class, in order to do it on a native code base, you actually have to compile the entire project. And that's uh, time-consuming, to say the least. I started building the system that would statically compile every single library in the ecosystem and generate documentation for them. And so from that, I ended up building that into like the CocoaPods website and eventually just sort of became someone that was very involved in a lot of decision-making for long-term perspective and not necessarily being the person that writes the code to make something, but being someone that's involved in the discussions about whether that's something we should build. 
So you mentioned before that CocoaPods has a rosy outlook and everything is great with it, but maybe there's a little bit more going on these days. So the interesting stuff about CocoaPods, in my opinion, is that there is a thing called Swift Package Manager. And so for the rest of the world, I'll give you the background. So CocoaPods has been around since 2011, and somewhere around 2015, Apple announced that they are creating their own package manager. This package manager is built entirely for Swift, inside Swift, and will be shipped with every single like set of the Apple toolchain. So it will be included on everybody's MacBooks and inside Xcode. So by default, it's there. And that's created a really interesting like problem for someone that's been running a package manager for the last uh, six years. It's actually like this really interesting problem of like Apple should be doing this. Apple should have been doing this from day one, realistically, because uh, a package manager is like an essential tool in any ecosystem. And the fact that there literally wasn't one, and that like Apple were effectively discouraging use of one, was uh, really inhibiting the community, and it ended up making like a split in the community in terms of like there are people that believe that Apple's way of saying you shouldn't have dependencies is the way and then there's everyone else that's come from every other ecosystem that's like well you know I want to share and reuse my code with other people I want to share and reuse my code amongst many apps and the monolithic way that Apple would like you to be building your apps is not quite the only way in which you can build things by releasing Swift Apple started targeting Linux for the first time so Swift, uh, Swift Package Manager only works realistically on a, on a server-side Swift kind of project. Uh, you can't use it in iOS or Mac. And it's really aimed at people that are trying to do server-side Swift or like command line tools, uh, which is effectively a very niche market. Why do you think Apple made that decision? Why did they decide to target it just at that server-side use case? I think Apple targeted server-side Swift as their first use case because it's a very small, understandable use case for them. CocoaPods took five years to become a 1.0 product simply because there were so many things that need to be covered. Like building libraries for iOS and Mac projects require building ginormous tool chains that have tons and tons of features that need to be covered Whereas just for a server-side Swift, all you're effectively doing is building an executable. And so you can lean on LLVM very heavily inside Swift Package Manager, which is what I'm pretty sure they do. Whereas on the CocoaPod side, what we tend to do is lean on Xcode. And so LLVM is the compiler, and Xcode is like the ID that sits above it. Both of those are like different levels of abstraction. So we as CocoaPods have to understand that, like the LLVM level a little bit, but we don't have to understand it in the same way that we'd have to understand how you would create a project or structure your, your tooling inside Xcode. And so it's much easier. It's a great place to get started. They can start with a very fresh perspective because nobody's ever done Swift on the server before. They don't have the problem of like breaking changes when suddenly you know, the manifest file doesn't work because they've decided a different version, a different way to describe the problem of a library. If they were doing that for millions of users, uh, I think it'd be much harder to do than if they were doing it for, you know, under 10,000 users in terms of people probably using Swift on the server. So it's kind of like the beta version of the package manager. Yeah. Apple are really taking their time with this. And like I mean that in the sense of like, they're trying to do it really right they're taking it like a very serious software project that's like llvm level of quality 
it's not the equivalent of what CocoaPods was after its first two years, which was like used in tens of thousands of applications probably by that point. But it was also just like quickly done to do the minimum required to get everything working. Whereas Swift Package Manager feels like they're really trying to build foundations that could last for decades. And so it's taking time to get it all right and building it into like every single useful bit of infrastructure. And then they'll probably start looking at how do we work it into the large set of projects that are iOS apps and Mac apps. Have you ever had Apple reach out to the CocoaPods team to actually kind of work with you directly? So in this case, yeah. There's a annual developer conference that Apple run called WWDC. And for almost every year for the past five, we've had a CocoaPods meets Xcode team meetup where it usually is just like we do dinner together and just talk about what they've released this week and uh, how they've broken everything for us and where where the like where like that line is where we can continue to be like supporting all the features that they want as well as trying to think in terms of long term like we want people to be using CocoaPods for a long time because generally we want stability in our tooling and ideally we want to find the smallest changes possible for everybody's project in order to it to continue running. But on the positive side for like Swift Package Manager, uh, someone that has been working on CocoaPods for two or three years is now working full-time inside the Apple Developer Tools team. And if I had to guess, it would be somewhere around this kind of problem, but I don't specifically know what he works on and I wouldn't pry anyway because Apple are renowned for their secrecy. Has that secrecy ever impacted upon CocoaPods? I mean, it impacts every single year. Every WWDC, something will break with CocoaPods because a new version of Xcode is released, which has different kind of foundations to to work on. Uh, For example, this year, there was the idea that instead of one version of Swift existing inside uh, the compiler, there's now two versions of Swift. Different modules inside a single like project can have different versions of Swift running on them. So like the compiler could be version three or version four, and each individual small chunk of code could turn into a single project that could be compiled by multiple bits. So suddenly now CocoaPods has to be able to deal with those kind of things. And obviously people want to use those features, so CocoaPods has to support those features. In those cases, it wasn't like it breaks today, but sometimes it does. And do Apple ever kind of donate any development time or any way of financially supporting the project no 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 support at all aside from that one single dinner that's basically about it i mean i don't know what it's like internally so like i i always like to try and assume the best in that like the team that works on xcode will test the CocoaPods project every so often to make sure they're not drastically breaking everything because there's like millions of projects using this so if they make something that drastically breaks CocoaPods, then they are drastically breaking millions of people's projects. And so I'm pretty sure they're testing that kind of stuff internally and trying to not be drastically breaking, but just like the minimum amount of breakage they need in order to get whatever things that they want to support. So you're obviously familiar with the internals of CocoaPods and will have seen some of the internal details of some of the Swift Package Manager What are the key differences between those two systems? What are the decisions that you've made differently to the Swift Package Manager? That's a really great question. And you know what? I'm not actually too sure of the exact answer. The biggest fundamental difference is that 
CocoaPods is built in Ruby and Swift Package Manager is built in Swift. It uses the word pins instead of lock for a lock file. And it uses JSON for that instead of YAML. A lot of the ideas are quite similar. Do you think there's an advantage to having a package manager written in the native language for the system where it's managing those dependencies? Yes. But I don't think it was a good idea for CocoaPods to have been built in Objective-C back in 2011. CocoaPods is definitely in the right position for the time, and Swift didn't exist until 2014, maybe? But the biggest downside, actually, in my opinion, is that trying to get people involved and trying to get people to stay involved is significantly harder when you have a different language for building the tooling than for the actual use case of that tooling. Uh, We find that people end up getting good at working on CocoaPods, and then they end up being hired for projects that rely on building that kind of tooling because it's way more valuable than being someone that actually would use CocoaPods in Swift or Objective-C. And then they never need to use the project, so they move on. Uh, One thing that both CocoaPods and Swift do, which I'm not a big fan of, is actually having a Turing Complete manifest file where you're describing your dependencies actually can be changed at the point where you want to read the list of the dependencies, which in the case of CocoaPods, I guess, is because it copied the RubyGem setup where the gem file can have kind of executable Ruby code anywhere in it, which means that you could actually add a new dependency on Tuesdays if you wanted to. Yep, that's totally true. And like in CocoaPods, that's actually kind of useful because a lot of people have pmprost install scripts that end up changing small parts of the project. But generally, yes, I, I know. Yeah, it, it's because like CocoaPods is a third party tool that doesn't get like native integration. So you have to tweak all of these parts of the system because CocoaPods shouldn't be doing some of these bits for you. I totally agree. Like I see the advantages and the disadvantages of both for both the manifest file and the manifest for a library because they're separate in CocoaPods, just like Ruby. Not all of our listeners may realize why that this Turing complete nature makes Andrew's life a little bit more difficult. Andrew, why is this a pain for you? Uh, The project that I work on, Libraries.io, tries to index every dependency in every open source library, which includes indexing each manifest file from every repository that it can find. Those manifest files list out all of the dependencies, but if they're listed in a file which needs to be executed to get back the list of dependencies. So I need to actually run the Swift code to find out what the list of dependencies are. That is, for me, very annoying because I I can't just pass it as if it was a YAML file or a JSON file, but also the security implications of downloading an arbitrary executable file from the internet and running it blindly are, for me, doing it at a large scale, quite dangerous. But for individual developers, they're also quite a big security hole from the point of I'm just going to install a package by its name and in running that command, I'm going to execute some arbitrary code that I've probably not looked at. The security side of that actually starts to bring in all kinds of interesting issues that are often kind of skipped over and seen as this is a feature rather than as a security issue. So security and trustworthiness is really a big theme in a lot of package managers. Auto, does CocoaPods have anything to help developers trust the people whose software they're using? 
So the registry for CocoaPods only holds JSON files. So in the case of most people's like projects, the only arbitrary evaluation they've got is like the manifest of all the dependencies that they'll want for a project rather than for each library. But I think it's always about trying to find like a balance between convenience and extensibility. CocoaPods has some really interesting attacks of this problem that's probably quite different from other package managers because we're native developers. We have a sandboxed version of CocoaPods. It's called pod-sandbox, where uh, the actual executable of CocoaPods, so the bit that would eventually run Ruby code, is sandboxed to only specific folders. So it can only make changes inside its cache folder and inside a specific folder inside your project, uh, which definitely mitigates some of this stuff, but is obviously not perfect. And we've never like pushed it too hard as being the feature for every single person because we just keep finding edge cases. So one difference between the Swift package manager and CocoaPods that I see is the Swift package manager doesn't have any concept of a registry where it will just say point at an arbitrary GitHub or Git repository somewhere on the internet, which makes it really hard to kind of get a good picture of what people are installing and actually to find pieces of code. Have you found that the CocoaPods registry has been helpful in catching bad actors? Realistically, we've never had any bad actors that I can think of. Again, we're a pretty small community in comparison to every other dependency manager. So potentially it's just that maybe we've not seen it or that it's still remaining well hidden. But I think that the idea of centralization is a real positive. I'm, it's pretty obvious that Apple will probably end up getting into the registry thing eventually. It was definitely on their list of to-dos when they first released the Swift package manager and saying this is what we're going to do over time. Because, you know, how else are you going to promote things that you like? I'm pretty sure that Apple will want to have some sort of, like, verified libraries. Uh, the only way you can do that is really by having a centralized space for them. Maybe not in the same way that we think of a registry that you make a ping to an API, but more in the sense of, like, this is developers.apple.com slash Swift libraries, and that's where they highlight all of the things that they, they prefer to, to showcase. Now that Apple have got into the package management game with a Swift package manager. Have you had any feedback or communication with people in Apple about what they see the future is? Do they see CocoaPods and Swift package manager existing side by side? I don't think so in the sense of, I mean, I don't really think they see CocoaPods and Swift package manager living side by side. Apple is definitely about having a controlled ecosystem that they can set a high barrier of quality on everything. Like CocoaPods is completely outside of their control and I'm pretty sure they would rather own the entire developer experience for building iOS and Mac apps. So it's very reasonable to think that they would like CocoaPods deprecated as soon as possible. Is it possible to manage Objective-C and C libraries with the Swift Package Manager? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, you can definitely do uh, Objective-C and C++ projects with Swift Package Manager. So they call it Swift Packet Manager, but Swift still relies on a lot of C libraries. And so they still need to support a lot of those in order to build their own tools and in order to in order to not have to rewrite something like OpenSSL, you realistically have to support those kind of tools. So realistically, CocoaPods has been deprecated from Apple's point of view. Yeah. Realistically, that was about two years ago. 
you know, the, the Cooker Pods team has never sat there and said, well, we're going to fight this and we're going to make the best product we could ever do because that's very much an uphill battle that we'll never win. So straight after Swift Package Manager came out, we started saying, well, we need to figure out what 1.0 looks like for Cocoa Pods because by that time, I think we're on 0.38. Um, and like we'd always been saying, like, Cocoa Pods is production ready, but at the same time, because Xcode changes every year, we don't really know whether we can make you a promise that this is you know, not going to be non-breaking every single version. So we tried to like figure out every single thing that we wanted to do that would have like a very long-lasting effect. And we called that a version one. That was a matter of choosing the features, trying to build things so that they will last. And we built something called the CocoaPods Mac app, uh, which was an attempt to fix the problem of all these developers that have never used the terminal before and only use it for CocoaPods because they're native developers and they're used to native tools. And it was really useful because... People that don't use Terminal don't know how to debug a Ruby stack trace or understand why a command isn't working. And so we managed to like cut an entire swath of uh, like developer problems. And so we, we focused a lot on trying to build something that was you know a bit like a turtle so it could withstand the time because it was obvious that since CocoaPods is now deprecated, there's much less reason for us to spend our own time on it. Why bother building new new awesome features when you know that there's just a, a sword of Damocles above your head. And so I eventually slowed down my own contributions, so did almost every other major contributor to the project. And we just started thinking about how can we make these things last longer. I guess the flip side of all of that is that even though the writing is on the wall for CocoaPods, there's still tens of thousands of apps out there which are using CocoaPods and they're still relying on it. Yeah, millions. Hopefully those people will be contributing fixes and keeping everything running just like the maintainers are doing now. It's getting new features, but it's getting new features slowly and it's being done extremely conservatively. And that's really the the change of the last two years. It's been whenever new things are added, there's a lot more discussion about whether we need it or whether it should have it or whether it actually introduces instability into the ecosystem because a lot of what we're building now is about trying to make sure it's going to last for a very long time. And that matters in terms of like how much money it costs to build you know, services on top of CocoaPods. How much time does it take to maintain the web search engine or uh, ensuring that SSL certs are always up to date and all these other things that they take an individual's time, but what if that individual isn't giving time to that project anymore? It's a problem most dependency managers have of trying to get new people in, but it also has the problem of it doesn't actually feel worth your time, even though all these people are using it still. Have you seen any projects that you think sunsetted themselves very well or ones which you've seen you thought did a bad job of that? Uh, so Ruby Gems felt like it was sunset for a while back in like 2008, nine, uh, where it just went down to just like one maintainer going along, chugging along before Ruby Together eventually sort of brought it back to life and started working on it again. I think they did a good job of battening down the hatches and just keeping the project running, even though it was being used everywhere, but being maintained by a very few people. But I realistically can't think of any of the dependency managers that have ever been deprecated, and so I've not really been able to take any useful advice how to find anything useful for me. Do you guys have any ideas? So I've seen a couple of uh, package managers actually kind of been turned off and 
both of them were just instantly turned off. The servers were shut down and it was not a pretty sight. One of them was the Jam package manager. I think it was based off of NPM, but designed for the for the browser back before Bower was a thing and really when NPM was getting started, but it just didn't get a lot of usage. NPM took over and one day the maintainer decided just to turn off the, the server, which of course killed it straight away and people naturally had to swap if they wanted to continue to use their things. At least it kind of was close to NPM in terms of usage. I guess you could potentially provide some way of turning your pod file into a Swift file for people to be able to migrate onto the next package manager for them. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that our infrastructure is built for a long term. So even if like, it would take GitHub going down for CocoaPods to stop working for most people right now, because we're not running our own registry, we're not running... Uh, servers that are actually critical to the path of using CocoaPods. If I run out of Heroku credits tomorrow, all the CocoaPods web servers go down, everyone's projects will still run. It's been a trade-off on some of those decisions, but at least we've done the like the right thing of being able to make sure things continue to work. So you don't have much in the way of material costs for actual services being run at the moment? Yes, basically. I'm pretty sure CocoaPods is in the range of $500 a month for every single piece of infrastructure. And is Artsy picking up the bill for that or is someone else paying? Well, some of that's the actual services that host it. So we have coupons for AWS. We have deals with Heroku. There's a company called Button that help out with some of my hosted Mac mini servers. Um, And Artsy will just cover anything that kind of fits in between those gaps. So no one, no individual maintainer is effectively getting hit by these bills. So I assume they will be continuing until like we find the way to turn the lights off. But I don't think we'll be turning the lights off in a in any real sense. It might be like a decade when the CocoaPods website will get so little traffic that it'll just not be worth it. Even if Xcode has broken the integration with CocoaPods within a couple of years. I think it's reasonable to assume that somebody will be fixing those because people will still be using it. But that's just like, you know, somebody understanding the Xcode project and making a small patch here and there. And as long as there's still someone around that's got the credentials to ship the RubyGems version, I don't think it should be a problem. There are big names that use CocoaPods. And so it's very reasonable to expect a pull request fixing some arbitrary Xcode change inside for Xcode 10 in a year's time. So one thing you said before was that when CocoaPods was set up, there wasn't quite such a culture of open source and using libraries among developers in iOS. Have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, definitely. And especially in new people to the uh, community of building native apps. It's hard to pitch. It's a weird pitch, but like CocoaPods really lowered the barrier of entry for people that want to make iOS apps simply by making it easy for you to reuse uh, infrastructure that other people have built in terms of networking libraries or being able to copy the kind of views, the, the visuals of applications quite easily. And so it was a lot easier to get something started. So there is a lot of criticism in the community of like all these people that just use CocoaPods to build their apps, which is very similar to if you imagine like someone saying that, you know, people using Node are just like 
building their own little applications out of bricks of node modules and not knowing the entire infrastructure. I think it's a like trade-off of you do want to get started somewhere, and if you can reuse other people's work and just understand at that abstraction level, then it really does lower the barrier to entry at the trade-off of there's loads of people in now that don't actually understand the stack that they're sitting on. And they'd be doing that with Apple's sets of libraries as well. Definitely. You can't see the source code for Apple's libraries. So, you know, you're one up on that at least, but Apple will be documenting it well, maintaining it and having like support avenues that you don't necessarily get with open source. Personally, I think that's one of the strengths really of any open source software, that ability to stand on the shoulders of other people who have worked on things and built things before you. I remember I saw in my own development kind of a shift and it was probably around 2014 where I used to be the kind of programmer who would really want to build everything myself. Like, of course, I'm going to build my own login system. It's just a couple of cookies and a couple of forms. So where's the harm? But now I'm much happier using Devise, which is going to do a lot of that stuff out of the box for the Ruby web projects, which I'm working on. How do you feel about that kind of package-based development? Do you think it's a good thing for the industry? I personally do. I believe that everybody should be able to build what they want to build, and they should be able to choose what levels of abstraction that they want to actually work at. And I think relying on libraries gives you the ability to make those choices yourself rather than being forced into only saying, well, I can only work with the lower set of tools and I'm going to have to build everything on top of those myself. In theory, even the standard library is a dependency of yours. One of the weird things about actually using React Native as a native developer is that I can fork and make changes to my foundational tools in a way that I've never been able to before. And it's hard to consider the actual baseline standard library as a dependency especially if it's a closed source one that's shipped to you and you have to you have to deal with it but the idea that that could be mutable and that you could make your own changes inside it and improve it is so so amazing to me so talking about react native how are you managing the dependencies within that and integrating that into the kind of xcode build setup basically react native is a set of native code and a single JavaScript file. You have a transpilation process that's very similar to the web where it kind of minifies it down into a single file that is then shipped inside your app. So we consider our entire React Native project to be just a single CocoaPods dependency. So it just brings in all of its native dependencies and it brings in no JavaScript dependencies. So in terms of the app itself, it only runs inside CocoaPods for dependency management. There's no NPM, no Yarn, none of those. Those actually happen in a completely separate library and repo. But from the perspective of the apps themselves, React Native is just some native code and a single JavaScript file, and it just kind of does its magic together. So you're then using Yarn or NPM somewhere else to generate that single JavaScript file? Yep, that's exactly it. Part of our deploy process for uh, React Native Code is that it generates a single file and that gets put inside a, a GitHub release that is then downloaded as part of a CocoaPod. How do you feel about this kind of melding of web technologies with native code? Personally, I am so... I, it is exactly what I was looking for. We, we uh, as a company at Artsy, had really started to struggle under native tooling and our ability to not control our own freedom, to be able to deal with Apple's changes every year. Our apps were getting bigger and they were taking significantly longer to make. 
reusing web tooling meant that not only could we work significantly faster, but we could actually share code and concepts with our web engineers. And so React Native, <laughs> I don't know how this turned into React Native talk, but React Native ended up merging our web and iOS teams together. And it's been really good to go from someone that works on tooling for native to someone that works on tooling for JavaScript because it actually is much more open. The tooling means making smaller pieces that can work together really nicely instead of trying to build monolithic tools like CocoaPods. And it makes it much easier to just dive in on a small project and, and contribute to other people's uh, workflows. And was that transition entirely smooth? Yes. I think... It, did, it was a smooth process. Uh, we, we as a team did two parallel tracks where one of us did Swift and CocoaPods and another engineer did React Native and we tried to build a big project separately and atomically and try and understand how that worked. And the React Native one turned out to be much easier to work with, much more maintainable and was much simpler code. And so we slowly, and this is the key, it, we took a very long time to make these changes to turn uh, workflow to be React Native without having a drastic rewrite. Yes, it's taken time, and I'm still releasing tools on a weekly basis that make our lives easier inside the JavaScript world as native developers, but that's something that I can actually do, whereas in the native side, that ability was taken away from me because Xcode used to allow some sorts of plugins, but now it's very limited and it's very strict on whether you can improve your own toolings. So how have you found managing dependencies in the JavaScript world? <laughs> that's, that's a loaded question. <laughs> but we actually came in at a really good time, in my opinion. We joined the JavaScript community about a year ago, and Jan must be somewhere around that kind of time frame. Uh, we'd been struggling a lot with NPM, being inside a dependency tree that is non-deterministic and that you have like no lock file and no ability to know how many versions of the same libraries inside your dependency tree has been very difficult. Yarn fixed a good chunk of those problems for us. And then I believe NPM5 has fixed a good chunk of those problems. But the scale is still the biggest air quotes problem for us. I understand that JavaScript doesn't have a standard library that's very like comprehensive. And so in order to have a useful standard library, you effectively have to build it yourself from this like massive hierarchy of dependencies. But just including React Native into a single project is 650-odd dependencies. And previous to this, if we introduced a single dependency in our native code bases, you had to have read the code for almost all of it. You had to be able to say, like, which other dependencies have you looked at and say, like, why you chose this one. Because it's a trade-off in terms of understanding someone else's abstraction in exchange for whatever features you get for that dependency. And we lost that ability in moving to JavaScript. We've tried a few times to try and reduce our dependency tree by finding the libraries that, that add more dependencies and try and reduce their dependency count. But it's really, really hard. I've been building a tool called Danger in JavaScript, and I have struggled so much to not just include a bazillion dependencies in order to get one thing done. You feel like you have to reinvent the wheel because somebody's already invented a nice wheel. Where, where is the level that you should use a dependency is very different in JavaScript than it is in native. I am really glad you mentioned Danger because I'm very intrigued by this project. Tell us, what is Danger? Danger is the idea of automating parts of the code review process. 
So uh, what we were finding was that in our native projects, we were always maintaining a changelog because we release, we do big releases pretty often because you know deployments take about a week. And so we wanted to make sure that on every single pull request, somebody had to include a changelog entry. And the only way in which you could do that was by being able to ha tell every developer on the team, we're going to all do this and we're all going to remind each other on pull requests if you don't remember. Doing that got boring very quickly and we all kept forgetting. And so I started building a generic system actually based off the core of CocoaPods to do that exact problem, to allow you to create your own rules that say like, only on a Monday do you need to add a changelog entry. That's something you could totally feasibly build with Danger. We have things that warn you when you add a new dependency inside uh, a JavaScript project. We have things that tell you that in order to make this beta in a month's time, you will need to ensure that these two numbers are the exact same inside this project. And it's really nice being able to automate massive chunks of your code review process. And the way that I try to explain that is it's like trying to set baselines for the culture that you are like accepting within your team. And so we use it everywhere. Like if you make a contribution to CocoaPods, then it will ask you for a change log. It will check your tests, do all your linters. Like it becomes part of the CI process and a way of communicating back onto the code review pull request page. Where does the name come from? Uh, the name comes from my wife, who's looking at me suspiciously. We tried to give it a name that was not Danger, originally going for Columbo, the detective in the like 60s. Um, but we ended up finding that all of the Ruby gems were, were not available. And Danger is my wife's nickname for six years, seven. And so it felt like a really good mix of like what I was actually going for and a fun in-joke. But then it turned out that Danger was actually a very a multi-year process. I think I started work on it around the time that Swift Package Manager came out because it wasn't necessarily worth my time to work on CocoaPods too much anymore. So I started working on that. And Danger today is something that runs on your CI, but internally at Artsy, we've been using it at a larger scale. So I've built a thing called Peril. Imagine every single pull request on an entire org could get some arbitrary rules. So an example I'm working on at the moment is a spell checker on any markdown file that gets pull requested. So it gives you the ability to set like org level cultural rules instead of repo level cultural rules. I'm really interested in like how we can improve process. And obviously like GitHub are building for like the vast majority of people and to expect them to be able to include every single team's individual features and requests is quite unreasonable. So using Danger and Parallel, you can kind of start creating your own workflows inside GitHub or Bitbucket or GitLab. Why did you choose to build on top of the CocoaPods core? The, the good bits about CocoaPods there is actually the bit that we talked about earlier, the Turing completeness part of it. Danger uses the same sort of evaluate and turn into an object system that allows you to create your own rules. So it allows you to arbitrarily say, like, this is a fail, this is a warning, this is a message, based on if statements throughout the, the danger file. CocoaPods already had a lot of that structure, and so it was much easier to take an existing code base that I knew and start working from there upwards in terms of the original version of danger for Ruby. Whereas when I rewrote it for JavaScript, which was, yeah, great use of my time, I just built it from scratch with all these ideas of how danger has been built and what a revised version of the idea of danger could be.
So do you plan on maintaining the Ruby and JavaScript versions long-term or choosing one and kind of focusing on that? Uh, I plan on keeping both around. Danger of Ruby is the one that is like effectively done. It's, it's kind of nice because having worked on something like CocoaPods for so many years where it cannot be done, it's actually nice to be able to say that like this project works, has hundreds of thousands of downloads on Ruby Gems and is like stable and people can rely on it. And maybe I get one issue a week. And so I'm really happy with the position it's in. And so a lot of my focus has been on Danger JavaScript because in the rewrite, I could apply constraints that I didn't apply on the original Ruby version, which makes it easy to evaluate on a server instead of on a CI level, uh, which means it's extensible in ways that the original is not. And that's what gives the ability to build something like Peril. For me, like Danger JavaScript is a more intense version of the idea that allows you to do a lot more, but at the trade-off of it's in the JavaScript world, so it's definitely not as stable. I mean, that stability in the sense of like all of your dependencies are changing, and Danger has dependencies that you probably have in your app as well, so when they change, you don't necessarily have the same guarantees of it continually working so well. Um, so I'm still figuring out the space where stability is for Danger JavaScript, but it's it's getting there. I, I one point owed it maybe two or three weeks ago because I felt like it was at a point now where anybody could use it for most projects. But even today I was debating something that I think I would call a 2.0 release because it would be a breaking change. What would the breaking change be? Ooh. Um, some of the problems of running something like Danger is that I want to be able to safely evaluate code. Because if I want to put this on the server, I'm literally arbitrarily evaluating code, which, as Andrew mentioned earlier, is a bad idea for anyone that wants to be hosting something. And so what I did was I actually used Jest, the test runner in the Node world, to like actually provide a mocking system and whitelisting and blacklisting parts of Node that I would like to expose to people so that I can safely evaluate code. But I came to the conclusion that maybe I could do it with less dependencies if I just do some of my own work instead. So I would like to test that out. And if that works, then removal of the Jest dependency is probably what I would consider a breaking change because it would uh, it would have further changes to people's projects, I think. So you want to end up with something like running JavaScript in the browser with a limited set of capabilities and no access to the system or to be able to change the runtime. Yep, exactly. So I'd like to be able to run dangerous server that anybody can just like click a button and then be able to say please run danger on this repo and every time there's a pull request on it then generate these rules but in order to do that i need to evaluate arbitrary javascript code that could be coming from anywhere and the uh, safety of my server is pretty important in those cases especially when you have other people's github oauth keys on that server Yes, that is definitely true. I really want to be super, super cautious about the rollout of that. And so a lot of the things that I have been thinking about is like, how do you safely evaluate JavaScript, which is tough. But luckily, a lot of people are putting a lot of time into that. Whereas in the Ruby world, there's less people that are involved in like, how do I safely evaluate Ruby? Because it's not really a problem people have. Ruby does have like a safe mode that you can basically stop it from being able to talk to the system that it's running in. Alternatively, a lot of people are doing things where they're running code from a third party on a, or inside of a container, basically hiding those things away, uh, which doesn't necessarily keep you completely secure. I think you have to actually put it inside of a VM 
put a container inside of a VM to make sure that you can't actually escape properly. But that is quite a lot more infrastructure than just executing a JavaScript file. I'd really like to see some more advances in that and make that even easier. The other day, I found myself thrown back a decade in that I had to download a Perl file from a cam.ac.uk website and install a whole bunch of modules via CPAN because I was trying to extract some data from a Palm Pilot calendar file. And as I sat there watching my terminal, watching hundreds of dependencies get downloaded, compiled, and run from this software, it made me think I really wish it would be super easy to just say, run this inside a container. Because although I kind of trust it, I would like to entirely trust it and have it sandboxed off somewhere else. Yeah, I think sandboxing and dependency manager is definitely like something that more dependency managers should look into. Like the Mac itself and most OSs come with pretty good sandboxing tools. You just have to know all the C libraries and all of the like hooks that you need to do. But we managed to get CocoaPods doing it with maybe a week's worth of work. And so I think it's a, I think that would be a good move for a lot of them. Especially when you come to things like posting school scripts for node modules that have full access to your to your local shell. Yeah, there's been reports of people having fake node modules that have the exact sounding name that just happened to take your you know, tokens and ship them up to some centralized server somewhere. Have you had any similar problems whilst working on CocoaPods? No. A CocoaPod could, in theory, have a post install hook. It'd be a script, so you'd have to have like a makefile or a Ruby file or whatever, but no one, to my knowledge, has ever submitted a this is a malicious uh, pod spec, and so I assume not the closest that our community's ever come to having like real cves like real networking security problems is when one of our like biggest dependencies called af networking shipped something that had uh bad ssl pinning and that's really been it for the entire native and ios community i think Generally, most people rely on Apple's tooling to deal with a lot of those security issues. And so Apple are the ones that are updating regularly. And most of us are just using their existing APIs to build upon it. The SSL pinning, for example, was custom code that was added to a networking library. And now that sort of code is now something that Apple provides. So they don't have that feature anymore. And so that security problem doesn't feasibly exist unless you recreate it. And most people are not willing to recreate Apple's projects because Apple's projects tend to be very polished the way it should be and uh, usually pretty reasonably maintained. So normally at this point, we would ask you if somebody wanted to get involved in CocoaPods, where should they go to learn that? And while that question stands, this one also comes with a question, should people be getting involved with CocoaPods at this point in its life cycle? I I think a bit of yes and no. Um, we definitely have the hundreds of issues now on the CocoaPods repo, and there's definitely a lot of space for people that want to be involved in the project because you know it's a project used by millions of projects. Realistically, now is actually a really good time if you want to contribute to something that is at this scale. A lot of people they they want to work on open source because it gives them an impact level that they do not have in. Maybe in their workspace, like maybe you're working on a startup where you can only ship an app to 
a few thousand people, but you could work on Cocoa Buds and get a feature used by all of your peers. So there's definitely space to do it. But realistically, I would just be recommending people like actively work on bug fixes that you know are annoying them because CocoaPods definitely doesn't have the resources anymore to actively go out and spend time just fixing other people's bugs. The only things that are really getting fixed now are the things that like actively detrimental to everybody or are actively being bugs that the maintainers see. So it's a good space to like start picking up some of the easy issues because we do try and label them. And if people wanted to learn more about CocoaPods, where should they go to do that? CocoaPods.org or follow CocoaPods on Twitter. And what about you? If people wanted to learn more about you, where should they go? So I am at auto.io because everyone's on a .io domain nowadays. And I am an author at Twitter as well. Uh, having a first name that is four characters that's relatively unique globally is super useful because it means I get it on almost every single service. Uh, so whatever it is, I'll probably be author on it. Well, this has been really interesting, Otter. Uh, fascinating to kind of hear about the plans for the kind of deprecation of CocoaPods and how you are thinking about it continuing to exist despite Apple trying to squish it. And to hear about Danger, which is a really exciting project that you've kind of, I guess, naturally moving towards now that CocoaPods is winding down. Thanks so much for coming on and we'll catch up with you again soon, maybe. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, Alex and Andrew. Have a good one. Thank you. Have a great day. Cheers.